Our scripture reading today is Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I now know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And would you pray with me? Lord, your spirit can speak a better sermon than I can. And so would your spirit be living and active among us, stirring in our hearts a deeper love for you as we consider uh, the depth and wonder of your love, your sacrificial love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you know we launched uh, Christ the Redeemer March 1st of 2020. Uh, It was less than two weeks before the pandemic came and changed everything. We had a great launch, a lot of momentum, but we had no idea what was coming. And so I've been reflecting on uh, the life of Abraham anew as the calling of a church plant in many ways is similar to the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12. The Lord calls a a planter or a group of people to leave uh, everything they've known behind and go into the uncertain, the unknown, 
Go to the land I will show you. In other words, start walking. I'll show you when you get there. Though I'd preached about this before we uh, launched the church in Quincy, we really had no idea uh, how unknown the world that we would be entering into would be. You also, Christ the King Cambridge, are in a season where uh, much is unknown, uh, uncertain. Thank God for providing uh, Pastor Clyde. But still, uh, much unknown, much uncertain. The story of Abraham has much to show us about God's faithfulness to the people that he calls to follow him into the unknown, to bless them, and to make them a blessing for others. Here, towards the end of Abraham's life, after he's received the son the Lord had promised, the Lord calls him once again to go. Very similar language to Genesis 12. Go to one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And once again, leave everything behind. But this time, that means doing the unimaginable, sacrificing his one and only son, whom he loves. And so the question that must be in the back of Abraham's mind, must be weighing on his heart this whole time, is what kind of God is this? And it's the question that this story forces us to ask. The question that should be in the back of your mind as we move through this story, what kind of God is this? And as we move through the story, we're going to look today at three things. First, the horror of the test. Second, the nature of true faith. And third, the wonder of the Lamb. So first, the horror of the test. In verse 1, we read, God tested Abraham. We, the reader, know what Abraham does not, that this is a test. The Lord never intended for Abraham to go through with it. He's testing Abraham's faith, his loyalty. What would prove stronger? His affection for God's good gift or for God himself? But if Abraham knew it was a test, of course, it wouldn't really be a test. So the Lord speaks to Abraham. We're not sure in what form. And Abraham humbly responds, here I am. And the Lord says, take your son, your only son, Ishmael has gone away at this point, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering at one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What a terrible thing to ask. Soren Kierkegaard, writing on this story in the 19th century, wrote, "Uh, let us either forget about Abraham or learn to be horrified by the monstrous paradox. In other words, we've either got to feel the horror of this or dismiss it altogether. Several months ago, I had a a horrible dream. It's related to other dreams that I have, nightmares, really, uh, in which my son, who's three, Liam, uh, and and I were up in a a tree house or something up high, uh, and in the dream, he fell. And I helplessly watched as he fell, started crying out, actually cried out audibly. You know, in my my dream, I'm crying out, help, help, but it just comes out sort of this guttural noise, enough to wake up my wife. Maybe you have similar dreams if you have children. 
All loving parents are rightly horrified of losing their children. But to be asked to do so by your own hand, unimaginable. So I know this is not pleasant, but we actually do a disservice to this story if we don't feel the horror of what God is asking of Abraham. Not only would he be losing that which is most precious to him, Isaac was the miracle child for whom they'd waited so long. Isaac, the child of promise. Isaac, the one through whom the Lord promised he would bless the whole earth. Even though we know it's only a test, it seems cruel, does it not? I mean, what kind of God is this? Terrence Malick's uh, wonderful film, Tree of Life, follows the childhood of a boy named Jack, and at one point, uh, we hear his, his sort of boyish prayers, help me not to tell lies, help me not to get in fights. But then after a scene in which he witnesses a boy drown at a local swimming pool, his prayers become much different. We hear his, his thoughts uh, whispered to God in prayer, where were you? You let a boy die. Why should I be good if you aren't? Why should I be good if God isn't? What kind of God is this? Is he a tyrant to demand Abraham's only son whom he loves? Can we really trust him? Well, this is the question that has been around since almost the beginning. The seeds of doubt and discord that the serpent sowed in the garden and has been sowing ever since, that God is not good, that he is a cosmic tyrant, that he is withholding from you, that he doesn't actually love you and he can't be trusted. What kind of God is this and what is going on in this story? Well, to Abraham, this commandment is not as absurd as it is to our ears. Difficult, yes, but not random. What uh, John Levinson, a Jewish ancient Near Eastern scholar at Harvard, has recovered in his book called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. Uh, what Levinson has recovered is that the Lord has always been clear, and we see this in Exodus 13 and Exodus 22, the Lord says, the firstborn belongs to me. Whatever is the first to open the womb, both among man and among beast, is mine. The command to Abraham comes before that law is given, but the Lord is not violating the law that he would later give his people. Now, this didn't mean that God was commanding the sacrifice of the firstborn, but it meant that the Lord could require it, and he would be just to do so. And we see this later in the Exodus narrative when God takes the firstborn sons of all those who don't rely on the blood of the lamb. Here's the point. God commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac would have made sense to Abraham in a way uh, that being commanded to kill his wife Sarah would not have. If God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice his wife, Abraham would have said, no, that's murder. But God commanding him to sacrifice Isaac because of this principle that the firstborn belonged to the Lord was different. Abraham could not accuse the Lord of injustice. For it was the Lord who had miraculously given Isaac in the first place to Abraham and Sarah. He gave 
and he could take away. But more than that, because Abraham and his household and every individual and every household owed to the Lord a debt of sin. That's what the sacrifices were for. For a sinful person to be in a relationship with a holy God, it's required that there must be some satisfaction of God's justice. And that satisfaction is is made only by means of sacrifice. And so the Lord here is calling in Abraham's debt. What kind of God is this? Well, to begin with, he's a God of justice. So part of the horror of the test is that Abraham's own sin would potentially cost the life of his beloved son. But wait a minute. Hadn't God promised that through Abraham's offspring, he would bless the whole world? In just the previous chapter, Genesis 21:12, he'd made it clear that that promise was for Isaac. So how does Abraham reconcile God's command to sacrifice his son with God's promise to bless the whole world through him? And that brings us to our second point, the nature of true faith. Let's look at Abraham's response. The Lord says to him, take your son and go and offer him as a burnt offering. What does Abraham do? Verse 3 He rises early in the morning, gets everything ready, gets his son, Isaac, and he goes. Very similar to chapter 12. Called to go and leave everything behind, he goes. Without any delay indicated in the text, without fully understanding, he obeys immediately. And it's not because he's this stoic, unfeeling, robot father. We can only imagine his inner agony So how can he obey? We see in verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place where God was sending him from afar. It's easy to to miss in this story that this is a three-day journey. It wasn't something Abraham wrestled with for a few minutes or hours, but for three days, two nights, perhaps sleepless nights. How can he keep going up this mountain? How can he obey given what he's been asked to do? It has to do with the nature of true faith. Early on in the 19th century, you had uh, Christians, philosophers, really debating the nature of faith. Some were presenting a life of faith as being always completely reasonable. And in response to this sort of over-rationalization of the faith, comes this Danish guy named Soren Kierkegaard who says, look at this story of Abraham and Isaac. Faith is not rational. And he writes a whole book, probably his most famous book, called Fear and Trembling, on this story. And the way he's often interpreted through a a modern or postmodern lens is that faith is irrational. I don't think that's a good or fair assessment of his book. But the way it's thought, his thought has been passed down is that faith is a blind leap That following God is just believing and obeying in spite of all evidence to the contrary, sort of a turning off your brain. Well, neither option, blindly following or completely rationalizing God, really get to the heart of true faith. Because faith is relational in nature. Faith is believing God based on relational trust. 
It may be easy to think that what keeps Abraham going is his firmness of will or his blindly following. That Abraham going up the mountain is saying to himself, I can do this, I must do this. But no, what gets him up the mountain is his faith, his relational trust. He knows the Lord and he knows that he is good. Abraham has walked with God at this point for decades and he's learned a thing or two. Like the farmer's insurance commercials, he's learned a thing or two because he's seen a thing or two. He's seen God's faithfulness, even in the midst of his unfaithfulness. God has proven himself trustworthy. He's a God of justice. He'll always be just, but he's also seen that there's more to his heart than his justice. He's gracious and merciful. He's loving. So Abraham says to his servants in verse 5, you stay here with the donkey. Me and the boy will go over there and worship. And this is much more clearly shown in the Hebrew. We, we, I, we, I, me and the boy will come back to you again. How does Abraham reconcile God's promise to bless the whole world through his offspring with God's commandment to sacrifice his only son? Well, we don't know exactly what's going on in his mind, but the author of Hebrews, commenting on this passage by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes that Abraham, Hebrews 11, writes that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham had resurrection faith. Kierkegaard writes, faith is not just belief in the existence of God, but in a particular kind of God, a God who both wants and is able to give him back his son. So what kind of God is this? A God who is both gracious and powerful enough to raise the dead and is therefore trustworthy. What sustains Abraham is not, I will do this. What sustains him is his faith, that God will do it, though he doesn't know how. His faith harmonizes God's promise and his command. As it says in the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, as we saw in the Word for Kids, Abraham trusted what God said more than what his eyes could see. And like Abraham, there's so much that we don't know. And don't yet see, as the Lord has, has called us to join him in his mission here in greater Boston. The Lord has promised to build his church. We don't know how he will do it. We actually get ourselves in trouble when we think that we ought to know how he'll do it. But we know that he will build his church. And the gates of hell won't stand against it. It certainly won't look like what we think. It never does. But the Lord has called us for a purpose, and He will provide, even if we can't always see how. Faith gives us eyes to see beyond our own individual stories to a bigger story, a grand story of God redeeming a people for Himself, renewing all things for His glory. And so in verse 6, with the conviction, the assurance that God will do it, though he has no idea how, Abraham leaves his servants, 
takes the wood and lays it on his son's back to carry up the mountain. We don't know Isaac's age, but if he's strong enough to carry the wood for a burnt offering, most scholars think that he was probably at least a young teenager. Abraham takes the knife and the fire, that's probably a torch, and the two of them go together from here on out. It's just the two of them. Going up the mountain, we imagine, heavy-hearted, silent, until Isaac breaks the silence. And who knows how long he's been thinking what he says in verse 7, my father, and Abraham says, here I am, my son. And he says, dad, I see the wood and the fire for the burnt offering, but where is the lamb? And an interesting question is, did Abraham believe his own response? I think he did, but not without some struggle, some doubt, some, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. So let's look at the wonder of the lamb. They continue up the mountain together in verse 9. When they get to the place God had told Abraham, he builds an altar, lays his son on the wood, binds him to the wood. And if Isaac is strong enough to carry the wood up the mountain, he's surely able to resist his, what, 120-year-old father? But we see his submission to his father's will. He trusts his father. It mirrors his father's trust in the Lord. And when we get to verse 10, the story slows down to capture even single moments like a slow-motion camera. This kind of detail is extremely rare in Old Testament narratives. Abraham reaches out his hand. He takes the knife to slaughter his son. And just then, when Abraham is committed in his heart to go through with it, yet not a drop of blood has been spilt, it's then that the angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear the Lord, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught in a thicket. Don't get thrown off by the the ram-lamb distinction. A ram is simply a male sheep. And so Abraham takes the ram and sacrifices it instead of, in place of, his son. And the test, instead of breaking him, actually brings Abraham closer to the Lord than he's ever been, closer to understanding the Father's heart. And he names the mountain Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it. And it is said to this day, verse 14, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now this is the first explicit example of a theme that we see running throughout the rest of the Bible, substitutionary sacrifice or substitutionary atonement. The idea that humanity owes a debt to the Lord for our sins and something, often a lamb, in Israel's sacrificial system must be offered to satisfy God's justice. 
Remember, he's a God of justice. But in his grace and mercy, he's also Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, the God who provides for himself the lamb. And there's maybe no Old Testament story that foreshadows or points forward to the cross of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away our sin more than this one. For it would be in the same geographical region thousands of years later that a father would lead his son up a mountain, a hill called Calvary. It may have even been the exact one, that's speculative, but we know that Calvary was in the same area and it's curious that the Lord sends Abraham to a very specific mountain of which he would tell him. There, the father would lay the wood on his own son, Jesus. The son would carry the wood, the cross, up the mountain and he would open not his mouth. The father would lay his son upon the wood, and though he had the strength to resist at any moment, he would submit to his father's will for the joy set before him. He would be bound to the wood with nails through his hands and feet. All of this not because he owed a debt of sin, but because we did. What kind of God is this? A father who would sacrifice his one and only son whom he loved. The voice that comes down from heaven at Jesus' baptism echoes this phrase exactly. And we do a disservice to the cross of Jesus Christ if we don't feel the horror, the appalling nature of what it is. The horror of the cross is that it was our sin that cost Jesus his life. And how can we continue in the same sin, knowing that so great a sacrifice has been made for us? There's a, a professor who was at Yale named Nicholas Wolterstorff, who wrote a sad, uh, moving little book a few years back called Lament for a Son. It's a series of reflections or lamentations over the death of his 23-year-old son, Eric, who died tragically in a climbing accident. And in the introduction, Wolterstorff writes this. He says, if someone asks, who are you? Tell me about yourself. Who is Nick Wolterstorff? I say, not immediately, but shortly. I am a father who lost a son. That loss determines not all of my identity, but much of it. And what I would submit to you is that when we think about who God is, when we ask the question, what kind of God is this? We should consider that fundamental to his identity is that he is a father who lost a son, who gave his only son. And what God was disclosing to Abraham and through Abraham in this story was both the, the horror and the wonder of the cross. The horror and the wonder of the lamb who was slain. The agony and the generous heart of the Father, a Father who loves us so much that He did not withhold, but graciously gave His one and only Son, whom He loved for us all. 
And as Tim Keller suggests, if Abraham were there at the foot of the mountain some thousands of years later as Jesus hung on the cross, he would have looked up and said, oh, now I get it. Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from us. In the pain and struggle of our lives, as well as the good times, we must look to the cross and know the same. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son because sinners like you and me are His treasure. What kind of God is this? He is no tyrant. He is not holding out. Our God is good. He's gracious. He is trustworthy. He's just. The cross demonstrates His perfect justice and that there must be a payment for sin. But the cross also demonstrates His perfect love that God Himself in the person of Jesus paid the debt we owed. And so our salvation, our belonging before God is not found in, I can do this, I must do this, but it's found in resting on the good news that God has done it, that he has provided for himself the lamb. It is finished. What kind of love is this, that through the lamb who was slain, we should be called children of God, and so we are. The Christian faith, then, is not just a belief in a particular, or in the the existence of God, but in a particular kind of God, the God of the cross, the God who loved us so much that he gave that which was most precious, and the God of the resurrection, a God who is both loving and powerful enough to raise the dead. Would you pray with me? Lord, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Would we know it? Would we uh, taste and see it as we come to your table? Would you keep it on our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.